Welcome back to the BAT Podcast. I'm Howard Swig, and today I've got a very special guest joining us, car collector, builder, restorer, and Trans Am legend, Paul Gentilozzi. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, Howard, it's really a pleasure. I, uh, I enjoy BAT, and uh, uh, you know, 18 months ago, I didn't know what it meant. I thought it meant British American Tobacco. Uh, but it, which it used to, but uh, no, I'm I'm active on your site and I really enjoy it. That's fantastic. I've been eager to chat with you when we uh, when we fired up this podcast a couple months ago. You were one of the people at the top of my list to uh, to email out of the blue and ask if you'd have some time for us, which is exactly what happened. So uh, thrilled we can connect today. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground. I got a lot of stuff I want to ask. Uh, you've had your hand in a ton of really interesting parts of the collecting and motorsports world um, over the last 50 odd years. Um, so yeah, I think our audience would love to start off with just kind of how did you get into cars and racing and uh, what were you doing when you were a kid that led to all this? Well, I came from a, a non-car family. My dad was in the construction business, but I had a love for cars since sixth grade probably whatever was in the library about cars i read and i couldn't wait the level of independence that owning a car gives you uh, was very important to me um, i bought my first car when i was 15. i had a best friend who was 17 and i saw a 44 sedan parked in a parking lot looked abandoned down by the railroad tracks and uh, i knocked on all the doors in the neighborhood Found out who owned the car, bought it for three hundred dollars. We uh, we towed it home. His name was Jim Sudbury, and we towed it home. Jimmy was older, so he had a car. With uh, I stole two of my sister's jump ropes, and uh, we pulled the car out of the lot and towed it about three miles home, where I uh, I did probably one of the smartest things I've ever done um, in working on cars. I, uh, I put a 12 volt battery in with a negative ground in a car that was six volt positive ground and promptly burned every wire out of the damn car. So um, that set me back. I, I, I didn't have any real money, but uh, my dad tolerated the car in the garage. I rewired it, found out. I was working in a gas station part time, uh, asked the old mechanics who told me that it was positive ground six volt, uh, learned my first really valuable lesson. And uh, about five weeks later, made it run and uh, started driving it, uh, painted it myself. And uh, I always had to park it on a hill though, because it didn't start very well. So when I went to junior prom, I had to, I, I, I had to ask Elaine Urban because she lived on a hill and uh, I knew that if I didn't get it rolling, we weren't going to prom. So uh, that was my first earliest car. Um, I, 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 love, I love automobiles. I love fast cars. And I've had, uh, I've had about 100 of them since I was uh, 16 years old. That's fantastic. And I think you're dialing in from East Lansing, Michigan. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, I'm just looking through your BAT user profile. Uh, you've uh, bid on uh, 
uh, bought and sold a number of interesting cars, and we'll get into some of these uh, today. Um, it seems to skew kind of towards towards American and towards the 60s and 70s. Is that uh, kind of your focus, or or what what are you uh, mostly focused on? Well, I'd like to think, and I've got about 100 cars in my collection currently. Um, I don't know how many I've bought off BAT. Um, I, I, I really, well, because a lot of times, if the auction doesn't go your way and then you negotiate, it doesn't get recorded as a sale, um, which is unfortunate for you guys, fortunate for us. But um, I'm a muscle car guy. You know, my first new car was a $2,985 68Z28 that uh, I love. Put a 488 gear in it, two four-barrel factory, factory dealer option, bell housing, 488 gear, two four-barrels with cowl induction. Uh, the intake manifold today would be worth about 10 grand uh, in a collector market. But that was my first car, and I immediately took it to the drag strip. Um, and, and 488 gears is a pretty high gear ratio, and it, it would go through the quarter mile at about 6,800 RPMs. And that started me at racing. Um, drag racing is one of those fundamental sports where everybody can afford to participate. Um, if you take your mom's Delta 88, pop the hubcaps off, you can go run G-Stock automatic anywhere. And, you know, you might run in the 18s at 88 miles an hour, but you're racing. So um, I, I spent every free minute and every free dime on that car. And then the Berger Chevrolet guys in Grand Rapids, uh, where I bought it, called me one day and they said, have you heard about these new Copo cars Chevrolet's going to make in 69? And I said, no, I, I don't know anything about it. And they said, well, it's going to be a 69 Camaro with a 427 four and a quarter horse. And I said, I, I got to have one. So uh, I sold my Z28, bought the 69 Camaro, and uh, it was immediately a badass car. And I actually made my living that summer, first summer in college, um, street racing that car. Um, I put a uh, 433 gear in it, came with a 373, shift kit in the transmission, headers, and 350 emblems on the front fender. And then I put padlocks on the hood. And I would go around all the little towns looking for street races, especially in the beginning, because nobody knew that there was a 427 Camaro. And uh, I had some eight inch slicks I kept in the trunk. I'd go there, find a race, tell them I'd be right back, go put the slicks on, open the headers some, and come back. And that summer I made almost $5,000. That's fantastic. I, I, love, I love hearing that. So uh, you started off as a drag racer, um, then you found your way into uh, Trans Am in the early 80s. I'm sure there were some uh, steps along the way. Uh, man, I was, uh, I totally derailed my day last week going deep on uh, watching some of those old races on YouTube. They're, they're very available. I would definitely encourage uh, folks to check out uh, the SCCA Trans Am. I guess they called it the Escort Series for a time. Uh, yes. 
but what a great era that was. And it's so uh, neat for me to see the names of the guys that were your fellow competitors at the time. I mean, names like uh, Paul Newman and Elliot Forbes Robinson and uh, Hurley Haywood. A lot of people forget that he was very active uh, in oh, that series. Uh, Scott Pruitt, Dorsey Schrader. I mean, th these guys, I think, uh, for a certain era of, of motorsports fan, I mean, these these were the names. Uh, these were names that they'll always remember. Um, I think a lot of people forget that Bruce Jenner, uh, now Caitlyn Jenner, um, was very active in motorsports in that time. Uh, you lined up on the grid with him uh, many, many times those days. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear from you. Just you know, whatever you'd want to share about uh, kind of your your Trans Am career uh, during that period. Well, of all the drivers you just mentioned, all of them except Hurley were teammates and drove for me. So uh, Scott Pruitt and I drove together a lot. Um, we won overall at the 24 hours of Daytona together. Um, Scott won his last Trans Am championship in one of my cars uh, for my team. Um, I talked to Kate just this morning. Um, I, I, uh, Kate Jenner you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked a lot. Um, and, and Kate was Scott Pruitt's teammate. Um, I was Elliot Forbes Robinson's teammate with a 924 Porsche and IMSA. Um, all great guys. I mean, all in all, um, as a team owner, I've won 33 Trans Am races myself in five championships, five drivers' championships. Um, and we've won nine drivers championships as a team, uh, 14 manufacturers championships, um, and then 24 hours of Daytona overall and a class win, 12 hours of Sebring, um, 24 hours of Le Mans class win. Um, we've just had huge fun with great drivers. Um, you know, guys, Tommy Kendall uh, was a great competitor when he drove for Roush. And then he was my teammate, um, and and Johnny Miller, Tommy Greasy, just a lot of great guys um, that were part of our team and part of the wonderful memories. You know, we we, we uh, were really proud of everything we accomplished. Uh, people forget that for a long time, Trans Am was as popular, and in some cases more popular than NASCAR. Um, in the late 60s and early 70s, all of the NASCAR teams had a Trans Am team. Bud Moore, uh, Parnelli Jones, Roger Penske, they all were the foundation of Trans Am and responsible for the fact that it's the oldest and longest running uh, sports car series in North America. So I owned it for seven years, the Trans Am series. Very good. And, and you mentioned 33 wins. I mean, that's got to put you on the level with who? Mark Donahue, I guess, was the was right up Mark, there as the most winningest. Yeah, Mark had 31 wins. And um, now he did it in a lot fewer races than I did. But I did it. It took me 233 races to win 33. Um, and I... I'm, I, and it was a long time I tied Mark's record. I have huge respect. He was completely my idol, and he died much too soon. 
Um, and, and I have great respect for Mark and, and his son, David, great guy. Um, so I, I got to 31 and then I didn't want to win anymore. I, I never, I, I, I didn't comfortably say I want to beat Mark Donahue's record. I was happy to have tied it. Um, and so I went about a year not driving and then I came back um to a race in toronto i had an indycar team then and i was running two and three cars in champ car and um, the promoter at toronto said i really would like it if you'd come drive and ron fellows was driving and greg pickett and, and a bunch of good guys and uh i i got back in the car and the competitive side of me came out that's where i broke the record and then i had another Win or two after that, so um, I'm I'm proud of the the part of Trans Am history that we play as a team. You know, I entered. There were many times when I was running four and five cars, so we've entered over 900 cars in Trans Am competition over the 20 years that we uh, that we ran there. Uh, I I think Donahue, who of course was uh, as as you uh, correctly point out. Uh, I believe he was killed testing an F1 car in Austria in the, in the mid-70s, if I recall that correctly. He had a tire failure, yes. So he, that, he was definitely kind of the first golden era of Trans Am, and I would say uh, you were definitely in the one that followed. Um, uh, well, there was a lot of great guys. I mean, when, in, in, in what generally happens, a driver, a team kind of comes along and dominates. So... You had an era with Willie T. Ribs and Scott Pruitt and Wally Dallenbach, those kind of guys. And then you had Tommy Kendall, who came along and had a, you know, he had an 11 win season, uh, which set the record, 11 of, of 12 races that year. Um, the following year, I won nine of 11. So drivers seem to be streaky. Um, and so I won my five championships over a seven or eight year period um, in which Boris said won a championship. Uh, Brian Simo, who was the owner of No Fear, Brian won a championship. And then after me, uh, Pruitt won another one in our cars. Klaus Graf, uh, a great German driver. Tommy Dreesey, uh, a guy from L.A., phenomenal car collector. Uh, Tommy's on your site all the time and uh as one of the best ferrari lusos i've ever seen uh and he has jim hall's 1970 camaro trans am car so tommy's a great collector so uh, uh, i uh yeah i and then we moved to imsa we won some championships there um and fortunate enough with nissan and clayton cunningham in uh in 94 to the last time a gt car won overall at daytona was in the nissan we were really proud of that and we went on the team went on to win sebring and lamar and a lot of people associate that era with you know the 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 um american cars on the grid but you know for example i think it was walter rural that drove the turbocharged um uh, four-wheel drive Audi and had a lot of success. So um, 
what was the vibe like uh, between the American and, and um, European manufacturers in, in that era? Well, that was the first year of Audi and Trans Am was 88. And it was uh, Hurley and Hans Stuck. And the first race of the 88 season was Long Beach. And so we had the Audis. We had Scott Pruitt in the Stroh's light uh, Mercury and I'm sorry, Mustang. And then I had a factory effort with Oldsmobile in the, in the Budweiser car. So uh, we were all, SCCA got fooled by the potential of the Audis. They were dominant race cars. Uh, we learned that early in qualifying at Long Beach, um, but they weren't yet reliable. So um, there was two crashes. Newman, Newman decided he was going to take the off-ramp to the Queen Mary at the start and wreck three or four cars, um, which ended up good for me because 88 was my first Trans Am victory. And um, I, honestly, the only reason I won, if, if, if the fuel tank on the Roush car with Pruitt would have been two gallons bigger, he'd, Scotty would have won the race. I was second. He had about a four-second lead, and uh, he ran out of gas. And I won the race in the Budweiser car. So um, after that, though, the Audis got stronger. And in 90, they went to IMSA and dominated there until the sanctioning bodies decided that uh, all-wheel drive wasn't really fair against two-wheel drive cars. But I made out of that. I made great friends with Walter Rohrl, Hans Stuck, who is still today my all-time favorite guy, and Hurley, again, a real class guy that I raced against for decades after that, uh, after those three seasons without him. That is great. No, we had uh, we had Graham Rahal on the podcast a couple weeks back, and yep. we were talking to him about. Uh, his dad's uh, Budweiser sponsored 86 uh, Indy 500 winner. Yes. Um, you were driving a Budweiser car around the same period. So uh, it sounds like the Budweiser uh, marketing execs uh, were, were very familiar with Ray Hall and Gentilozzi uh, in, in those days. It, it, Bobby, Bobby, of course, and Bobby and Graham are both great race drivers. Um, and Jim Truman, who was Bobby's car owner, in 86, um, Jim owned Red Roof Inns, the, the motel chain. And um, Scott Pruitt also drove for Red Roof and Budweiser. And that's when he had his big crash three years later. Uh, Scott broke his back and his legs and his feet and still to this day uh, suffers from that accident. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to see, I see Graham collecting and buying cars and uh, skulking around there. I, I see his moniker. Um, uh, he doesn't say much, um, but he, I, I know he's there. And uh, Bobby's got a great collection also of cars. And, uh, you know, of great interest to me beyond the Trans Am stuff you did, um, you raced a Porsche 924 GTR at Sebring. Um, yep. You were involved with... Um, uh, driving a Ferrari 333 SP uh, at Lama, among other places. Yep. Uh, those are two examples of cars that are 
you know, obviously hugely valuable and desirable today. Um, and it's pretty neat that uh, you raced those when they were new. It was. I, I, I did the Ferrari thing with Andy Evans. I did the Porsche thing with Tom Winters. We, uh, we actually ran, first we ran the Porsches um, in GTU and uh, the Oldsmobiles in GTO. And then we ran a Camel Light car uh, originally with a uh, General Motors V6 and then a Porsche engine. And um, that was a car built by Fab Car. Um, and then after that, um, we, uh, I, I got involved with Andy and we did the 333 project, which was an interesting dynamic because of the politics within Ferrari. They, um, the, the 333 was developed and built by John Paolo Delara, who used to build all the Ferrari Formula One cars. And John Paolo and his family um, in the development process of the car became good friends and are still friends today. You probably most know the Delara name from the cars that race in the IRL, the Indy Racing League, because they build all of those cars. And uh, I was, Tony George, who uh, controlled the Speedway in Indianapolis and founded the IRL, um, Tony came to Le Mans with Andy and I to watch us race. Um, the car, the engines, they were Formula One 12-cylinder engines, not really designed for endurance use. So they didn't last very long. So after the, after the Le Mans race, we, uh, we flew to Milan, drove down to Bologna, and then went to Delara's factory. And that's when Tony made his deal for Delara to build the Indy cars. And, and I, I can remember the conversation uh, very specifically. Tony asked John Paolo if he would uh, build him Indy cars because Reynard and Lola had refused. They were involved with Champ Car, and it was a very heated competition. So um, Tony said, I want you to build cars for me, and I'll buy 36 of them. And, and I can remember John Paolo saying to me in Italian, uh, is he really serious? And I said, yes, he is, very. And uh, Tony got out his checkbook, his personal checkbook, left him a deposit, and the IRL got new cars. Wow, that is fantastic. I would love to, um, I'd love to shift to asking you about kind of what you're doing now in the, in the collecting and restoring world. Um, uh, at this moment, and by the time this airs, the auction will be completed, but you are selling on BAT right now a 95 Dodge Viper that you bought new? Well, actually one of my partners, one of my business partners bought it new, and um, he, he was a great collector who never told anybody. And then, uh, and, he's, and he's in his 80s now, um, decided that he had all these cars and never used them, never let anybody know he had them. So we made a deal and they came to us. So um, uh, he, he was the principal of a Dodge dealership. He bought the car brand new and never drove it. The car got delivered to the showroom, sat in the showroom for decades. And then uh, of course we took it, we bought it. And coming, I have 
some other great never driven cars that I can I'll, I'll share with you. Um, we have eight Z06 Corvettes from every year they were made that we're going to be auctioning on BAT with virtually zero miles. Fantastic. So um, we're gonna um, we're gonna sell that that deal was about twenty four cars, um, some really spectacular C1 and C2 Corvettes, uh, top flight NCRS ratings. But I think the most interesting thing is all the new, brand new Corvettes that have never been driven that uh, we're going to be bringing out here in the next few months. Absolutely. No, we're looking forward to that. I had mentioned um, at the start of this show that you had um, are involved in some uh, building and restoring of cars. Um, very recently, you sold on BAT. Uh, a car that you had purchased a couple of years earlier on BAT and done a, a fairly major drivetrain swap. That was a 65 uh, Malibu SS uh, yeah. up back in, in 2018. Um, and you guys put an LS3 um, engine in it and some other, um, some other stuff. So is that, a, is that a typical project for you or uh, what are you guys working on? I, I, you know, that car was a nice little car, had um, great paint. Um, but it had basically a traditional Muncie and 350 um, small block Chevy. That wasn't interesting to me. Um, I knew when I bought the car right away that we were going to do something more special about it. So um, we basically did a frame off, did tubular front control arms, did the LS3 conversion, um, rewired the whole car, put in the right radiator, all the fuel systems, put in uh, uh, control arms in the back, tubular control arms, four-wheel brakes, real brakes all the way around. Um, we did what I wanted to do for me. So uh, we built the car, I drove it, um, and like everything, when you build a new race car, you race it a few times and then you go do another one. So um, I like sharing um, you know, one of the tough things, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm glad to do this, one of the tough things about buying cars on BAT, if you're a mechanical restorer or collector, is that when you sell it, so much is discussed about the car you bought. In this case, only the body shell was the car I bought. But people said, well, you bought that car for $19,000. Yeah, and I put forty more thousand dollars in it, but it's it's more difficult to sell a car on BAT if you bought it on BAT because judgments are made without people really being able to know or understand how much you invested in it, how much time you invested in it, and in I mean I, it is by far the best auction platform um, I've had experience with all of the other auction platforms, the real, the, the live auction platforms. And I much, much prefer this. I, I, I've been to Barrett Jackson. I've been to Mecham. I've bought and sold cars. And this is by far more fair and a better value with significantly less politics. And if I could say bullshit, um, this is the best place to sell or buy a collector car. 
No, fair enough. And, uh, and we appreciate you saying that. Uh, we, we've sold some pretty neat uh, muscle cars over the years. You actually ended up with one of my favorites a few years back, which was a red 70 Challenger 426 Hemi. Yes. Uh, I don't know if that's still in the collection or not, but. Really? Yeah. I drive that car um, on occasion and it was really well done. And I thought I made a great buy um, on that car. I don't know what people, Galen Govier is a friend of mine, so it's easy for me to trust his opinion. I raced for Chrysler for a long time and um, always um, affectionate to that brand. Uh, just after that, I bought a matching six-pack car um, that I like a lot. Um, and so I grew up with 67 through 71 muscle cars. And uh, that's really the prime basis of what we collect here. Now, you bring up an interesting point, and it's, um, it's something that we are talking about every week here at BAP, uh, particularly with American muscle cars. You know, the, the authentication process for, um, you know, the really true limited production uh, special variants is probably the most difficult uh, of any area of the of the collector car hobby. Um, you had mentioned Galen Govier, who's kind of the Mopar expert. Uh, obviously, yeah. Harry McNeish with Camaros, but um, yeah. you know, unlike you know heritage departments at places like Porsche and Mercedes, um, and given in the muscle car world how uh, you know the base spec car can oftentimes look very similar to um to the top line um how, how do you think about uh collecting those and and kind of the uh, authenticity minefield that naturally goes kind of goes with the turf I, I, you, you you're absolutely right about the minefield and I, it's unfortunate that there are so many crooks in the world and there are people who intentionally lie so as a buyer, you better know your stuff and you better look at the car. Don't trust the stampings, confirm the casting dates, send somebody. I'm fortunate that I got a staff so I can send a guy to go look at the car. And if the seller of that car is reluctant to let you do anything, find a different car. Don't buy that car if the guy won't give you a copy of the Vintag if he won't give you pictures of the build dates. Um, I, I didn't know it was so easy to lie, and I didn't know it was so easy to falsely duplicate those kinds of parts. Um, as an owner of a lot of those cars originally, um, I, I think it's important. You know, I, I had a bunch of W30-442s. And I've got a lot of Oldsmobiles in my collection today. Um, and I worked, <laughs> I worked at Oldsmobile on the assembly line when I was in high school, uh, building engines, assembling engines. We didn't build engines. But so I have areas of expertise. I certainly know the Chevrolet stuff because I raced it so well. But I feel sorry for guys who try to buy something you know, they want to buy a, a 69 Z28. Gosh, they made thousands of them. But 
there are very few that are still purely authentic. And maybe, maybe we get too fixated on making everything perfect. A perfect 69Z28 is a $125,000 car. You don't want to drive a $125,000 car. But worrying, if you buy one for $50,000 and you're going to drive it, don't, don't get consumed with, is it the right period correct distributor? Because it doesn't matter. What matters is the pleasure of driving and owning the car. And I, I tell folks all the time, um, and I'm, I'm a little tough on those who want to throw up red flags about a car that's going to sell for $50,000 because they pick at it, they criticize it, and all the other things, the body off, the paint quality, the engine rebuild, all of those things are really good, and the car's a good driver. So I say to, to people who bid and buy on your site, know what you want to do with the car, and then understand what you have to do to authenticate the base premise of the car. Um, I have a, an LS6 Chevelle convertible. Now, they didn't build many. Um, they're valuable cars. They're two, three, four hundred thousand dollar cars. Um, and I spent five months authenticating the car. Um, I don't want to sell it. I haven't put it up for sale because I watched other cars go up for sale and 29 guys nitpick and criticize negatively a car that's really a good car. So um, as a collector, know what you want to do with it. You want it to sit on a podium and you want to shine lights on it and maybe drive it three miles a year. Do you want to buy it so you can work on it and resell it? Or do you want to buy it to drive it and enjoy it? So um, a lot of people are voyeurs as buyers, and that's cool. That makes our sport bigger. But to those who actually buy, know what you're buying, respect the value, and don't complain about it. Certainly you, you, not. I think you know, those are great points. I think um, uh, the BAT model is probably – um, extra effective when it comes to selling something like an LS6 Chevelle or an L88 yeah. Corvette because the uh, the level of expectations for what you as a seller uh, need to present to make that a successful sale is very, very high. Um, exactly. And uh, like you said, you spent five months, you know, authenticating the LS6. So um, when we put together these listings for that 426 Hemi or the L88, um, there's a hell of a lot of work that goes into uh, the seller you know, producing all the things that any, um, you know, prospective intelligent bidder would want to know when approaching such a car. Well, if you're investing, that L88 that sold on your site recently, I really like that car. It was a great car so a week ago or so, the, the blue car. Um, I thought about bidding it, but to get caught up in authenticating it in just a few days was impossible. And when I bought this Chevelle, the only reason I ended up buying it and paying the money was because Bill Wink Chevrolet, Bill Wink was a fellow competitor in Trans Am. If you call a car dealer and say, hey, can you get me the original bill of sale 
from 1970, they're going to laugh you out of town. That the last thing they want to do is find records from 50 years ago. So because I knew Bill and because his family had owned the dealership since then, I was able to get the original bill of sale. Well, that to me, beyond all doubt, proved that it was a real car. But I, I see people who get half-assed documents and I see people who alter documents and you really have to be aware of that. When I started collecting cars maybe 15 years ago, um, I learned a valuable lesson from a guy who was really big, Reggie Jackson, in the car collecting business. I bought five or six cars from Reggie, sold him some cars, and went to Bear Jackson a couple times with him, had him come as our guest to the Long Beach race. Um, Reggie exposed me to how to look for the underbelly of the car collector business. And it doesn't matter whether you're collecting an old Porsche or a Ferrari or 69Z28. There are people whose interests and intentions aren't as pure as yours. So you gotta be smart. You, you gotta do your homework and you gotta trust the experts. So um, I, I, I was a director at the Arioles Museum and the museum ended up, if you buy a Pontiac, there's a source to authenticate Pontiacs. There isn't really a source to authenticate Oldsmobiles. There is with Jerry McNeish on the Chevrolet side. There is with Galen and, and there is, and I've just lost the name of the guy that does the Fords. We just, we just hired him the other day. Um, I, I, and I don't want to get too far off in the weeds, but I did a barn find on a, um, 69 super cobra jet mercury that they built like 50 of and and i bought it from the original owner the car's never been touched and um i asked him to authenticate it and he did all of those records were available so um find the right guy that you trust that you know and use it and Spend the time to evaluate what you're buying. Uh, and the last lesson is there are no chumps. Don't think that you're going to buy a perfect $125,000 Z28 for 50 grand because it's not going to happen. There are too many people out there that are smart. And if you think the seller is a chump, you may end up being the chump. Certainly, no, and, and, and getting off into the weeds is what these conversations are all about. So uh, we encourage that. Um, it sounds like you have a, a garage full of cars already, but uh, we'd love to hear kind of what, uh, uh, what cars you have your eye on now and uh, what you're hoping to maybe pick up in the future. Um, I, I, I kind of limited myself to muscle cars, and now I have one of all. So there isn't much in the muscle car area that... Um, that I want to collect. So I've looked at other things. I think the most recent purchase for me was a 56 Continental, the two-door. Um, excellent body. Uh, we've got a plan. We're going to use a Triton 10-cylinder with a flat crank, uh, paddle shift automatic, 
kind of a resto mod of the Lincoln. We're going to put 22 inch wheels and tires on it because I've never done one. And, and it's such a cool car, but it wasn't complete from a drive line complete enough to do a perfect restoration. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for unique builds. I, I have a great friend, longtime friend who, who I look up to a guy named Bruce Meyer from Los Angeles. And those of you who are real collectors, Bruce is the consummate collector in the United States. Um, if you don't know him, he was on the board of the Peterson Museum for a long time, a leader uh, in Beverly Hills, has a personal museum behind his office there in Beverly Hills, and has the coolest cars that anybody who collects cars could want. Um, he has both the SoCal Speed Shop, Belly Lakester, and the 32 High Boy. He has the first production Shelby Cobra ever made. Um, he has the first Ferrari Testarossa, 1957, built by Ferrari. Uh, one of my favorite pictures is from a deal at, at Bruce's house with Mario Andretti sitting in the car. And, and I never forget, it was a dinner we were having, and Mario said, do you think Bruce will let me sit in his car? I said, Mario, you are Mario Andretti. Bruce would be honored to have you sit in his car. And, and, but the look on his face, you know, to Mario, that was the coolest car ever built. And to see him, how happy he was in that car, says the world of how important, when one of the world's greatest race car drivers gets excited about a, a collector car, you know it's really cool and important. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm, I am now talking because I just kind of went off on a tangent. But um, I, I don't know what's next. When I every day, your site is the first email I look at, and I look at new cars, and I bid them. I try to value them. Um, I'm looking for a CBX. Honda, this, the six-cylinder engine. Um, I have kind of a motorcycle collection, dozen bikes, uh, stuff that's unique. And I really respect the engineering on the CBX. So um, I'm looking for one of those. And I, I should have bought one the other day of Facebook Marketplace, but I got there too late. Um, so um, I, I, I look every day. I click on what's interesting, and I chase what I think is, is going to be a fun build. Um, and we're backed up, the shop's backed up about a dozen cars with project builds. Um, everything from a uh, 54 C1 Corvette with a complete uh, C7 Corvette driveline. Torque tube, complete suspension, um, now a, uh, a 600 horse, normally aspirated 427 LS. Um, and that'll be a perfect car. We'll finish it. I'll drive it a little bit and then it'll be on BAT. That's fantastic. Uh, no, Paul, I'm, uh, I, I went to school out, out in Michigan and I'm there often. So next time I'm, uh, I'm in town, I will absolutely drop you a line. And, uh, yeah, I could, I would love to dedicate a whole podcast just hearing about, uh, you know, you drinking beers with, with Paul Newman and, and Willie T. Riggs. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to do that one day. Well, Paulie. Um, 
I, I'm amused. Paul was a good, dear friend. And I, I as a man, I respected him uh, as much as any man I've ever met in my life. Um, and, and we did a lot together. We laughed a lot. Um, I, I, um, when I see guys, you know, I saw Adam Carolla do a story for TV about Paul and I, I talked to the people that were close to Paul and none of them participated. I certainly did not, but, um, I've shared, we, we, uh, we, we've done a lot of dumb shit stuff. And I, and, and Mike Brockman and the guys that were close to PL, um, but there wasn't a finer human being on the planet. Um, and there wasn't, I never knew Paul Newman, the actor. I knew Paul Newman, the race car driver. And he drove my cars several times. Uh, we tried to win a SCCA GT1 national championship in one of my Jags. Um, and we had long, engaging political discussions. He would, Paul, Paul's, favorite possession in the world, and he didn't give a shit about possessions, was this Sabre 65 jet, um, which was kind of an odd airplane, um, really well built, built with a fighter plane landing gear and wings. And so anything on the West Coast, he would pick me up, um, even though he could fly coast to coast. And and we'd have, uh, I'd, I'd get on with 12 beers, Budweiser's always. And uh, and, 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 and we'd talk and bullshit and tell each other lies and then get to the racetrack and race really hard against each other. So, um, uh, and, and I can't, because I have children and a wife, I can't talk about the Willie Rib stories. Uh, <laughs> but Will and I, um, we, we did, uh, we, we also had a lot of fun. <laughs> and and uh, I, I respect Willie tremendously i enjoyed racing against him i enjoyed having him as a friend um you see the thing that's addictive about all of this is we race i believe that we all race because we have the fear of just being ordinary people um i think race drivers are all insecure they you know usually weren't that good in school um and they needed to do something to redeem themselves so we were race car drivers because then we had the excuse to do silly behavior and, and waste money. And so that's what we did. And then you get old and you can run HSR, but it's really hard for a guy who raced competitively for 50 years to stop. And that's why Paul never did, he never did the historic stuff because he never wanted to admit that he was just not not extraordinary maybe ordinary so uh, and that goes for everybody in our sport race drivers have the fear and the way they accomplish or overcome the fear is by winning races no that's fascinating well, well paul i'll have to come uh, collect on the rest of those stories uh, in person when i come see you in east lansing but but thank you so much for uh, for joining us uh this was great and and i really enjoyed it well I and I say this, um, BAT guys, um, guys who are serious about being on BAT, I don't hide my number. If you're in the Lansing area and want to come by, uh, just call me. My, my shop's open. 
to anybody who's active on BAT. Um, so and we welcome people all the time. When it was a race team, uh, we did it for uh, lots of people. We enjoy it. We enjoy having kids come. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, my, my, my receptionist is probably going to shoot me in the head here. But uh, if, if you're an active BAT member and you are coming through the greater Lansing area or you're in Michigan, I just had two guys come over from Chicago a week ago that uh, just asked if they could come and look at what we do. We're glad to have you. All right, Paul, be careful what you wish for. You're going to you're going to have a line around the block. But no, thank you. Uh, we appreciate you uh, being a part of the community and uh, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Anytime, pal. I appreciate talking to you.